0: Well, it's been uh, fun being with you for a few weeks. Let me remind you of the the shape of the book. Remember this is the outline. Uh, if you can't see the chalk, it's because you're really intelligent. If you can't see the chalk, you're just kind of average. Okay, so, um, verses one have got the main the main big ideas of the book. So, if we only had time to read four verses. Those four books will give a main truth that it's communicating. Chapters 1 to 4, which we'll be we to cover over these three weeks, gives you not only the main ideas, it pushes them out of it, and then tells you what the writer thinks you should do with them. That if you were to take these ideas that are encapsulated there seriously, chapters 1 to 4 will really give you the guts of the book. And then if you go to chapters all the way to chapter 13, we will uh, flesh these things out, give really helpful other insights, and instead of one verse telling you what to do with it, we'll give you half a chapter at times. So that's why we've just thought, in terms of three chapters, or 3 we'll just try to go to the first four, because then you can pretty much work out the rest of the book. That's the theory. By way of revision, I'd like to read you a song because I love you. I won't sing it, and uh, it's a song that, at least in the circles that I move, we've stopped singing, which is probably a bit of a shame. It's based almost entirely on the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 with the huge Jesus, the inconceivable Jesus, and Hebrews 2 which wants to remind you of the closeness of Jesus, that he's truly human, although he's the creator. Let me read you uh, some of the lines in this hymn, song. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, Dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross, suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice. And as they crucify, praise, Father, forgive. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship for this is your God. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible. Love indestructible, in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his cross. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this choice gift that you've given to us in the book of Hebrews, that brings together ideas that don't naturally uh, fuse together in our own minds and hearts of the extraordinary greatness of Jesus and yet his wonderful closeness. And we pray now that you would please pour your spirit out upon us, that we would truly hear your voice and that you would renew us in his image. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've heard um, this sort of talk that I'm going to refer to. I'm not going to give you one and I, I don't think I've ever heard one, but a number of my friends have heard this sort of talk where someone uh, will say to you, look at the person on your left, you might like to do that, uh, look at the person on your right, um, right? and um, well, the, the next statement goes something like this, in 15, 10, 20 years, depending on which particular server they have or haven't studied, uh, only one of the three will be in any way connected to Christian things. Um, I'll base that on some fair teaching in the Bible or Jesus' story of the seed and the sow and other things that lots of people start but not everyone who starts finishes which is what Hebrews 3 and 4 will also say. And the idea is to stir you up, to say, right, hang these other two blokes, I'm going to make sure I don't fall away or something like that. But it's not not quite that easy, I don't think. I want to tell you just two fellowship groups that I've had quite a bit to do with, uh, St. X's and St. Y's. Uh, At St. Y's, of what was a very large youth group and quite well known. In terms of the person who I know who was in the heart of it, there's only three people from her group who are still obviously Christian. The others are lovely people who are kind of on side with Jesus but really never go to church and most of the time are fairly critical of what they know about the church which is through the Herald and the ABC. Um, so there's only three. But then another church I know, which I was involved with a little bit, Just about everyone who I know who said they were Christian then still is and many of them are powering on in Christian service and there was a very clear difference. Uh, The the first group that I mentioned which had the very high sort of collapse rate was often very critical of the sort of Christianity in the other group. It was seen to be um, harsh, it didn't understand grace, uh, which I think was nonsense. Um, But the, the group that had a very high survival rate, in fact flourishing rate, I think was a group that took the sort of teaching of Hebrews much more seriously. Uh, the teaching that said, it is wonderful to be Christian. God is more gracious than you've begun to understand but being Christian is fundamentally a dangerous journey and as happened for the Israelites, many who came out of Egypt did not in the end enter the Promised Land. They could have but they made dumb decisions that destroyed them and that understanding a Christian, of of the Christian life as joyful, an experience of the gracious kindness of God and yet a life that you need to be careful in, a life that you need to be walking with thoughtfulness about. Uh, Both things need to be held together and uh, that's what I'm hoping will happen for us here, that we will hear the voice of God and live the balanced Christian life, both joyful and, as it were, carefree in approach to God and yet, at the same time, cautious and careful in the decisions that we make. Well, as you can see from the outline there, we need, uh, we need at least two things when it comes to God. You need a message from God and you need a way to God. You need a revelation from God that will re- reveal to you the truth about what God is really like and what you're really like and what the world you live in is really like and you need a way to God. Uh, I think it's fair to say that most religious systems of any, any type deal with the sense most thoughtful humans have that there is some disconnect between us and God. Something needs to be done in order to reunite us with God. So, the idea of sacrifice of various forms is in many, many religions. This sense that something needs to be done to heal the relationship. A word from God and a way to God. Hebrews will keep picking up on both of those themes and says they're both found in the one place. Well, let's have a look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And then he runs a parallel between Moses, who's the great man in Judaism, and Jesus, not unlike the parallel with the angels, which is saying Jesus is far, far, far better, far, far above. But they are both faithful to God. What he says to us, friends, is to fix our thoughts upon Jesus. This is a choice that you make. To discipline the way that you think. And the more often you discipline it, the way that you think, the more natural will become that way of thinking. That we are to fix our thoughts. You and I are called on here to fix your thoughts upon Jesus. To not let them drift around all over. To not let them just wander wherever the local external stimulus may force them. But actually to have a a mind where you take control of your thoughts. And you fix your attention upon Jesus. I've got here a little key, which is uh, central to fixing my bike to the fence. I do not want my bike to wander from the fence until I want it to wander. So it's a, it's a garbage bike anyhow really. In fact, it might belong to you. So I found it uh, a year or so ago outside my house. It's obviously been stolen from somewhere and I keep waiting for me to be riding innocently down Glebe somewhere, and someone will crash-tackle me and say, you're the rat who stole it. No, 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 I didn't. St- I found it. And uh, I put a note where I found it saying, if anyone lost a green bike, it's a 35 around the Street. Uh, but now I've had it fixed, and I ride it as if it's my very own, and I put a lock on it. Although I don't think anyone would actually want to steal it, um, but I've got this ch- sort of very cheap chain holding very cheap bike to this magnificent fence, because I don't, I don't want the bike to leave. So I've chained it there. And I think what the Bible is saying is, chain your mind to the source of truth, joy, and life. That is to Jesus. Fix it. Determine that again and again you'll bring your mind back to gaze upon and feast upon that which is true and excellent and which will stimulate you to keep going. And then, as so often, God will tell us how to think about Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest. The apostle is someone who is sent. Uh, There's a sense in which uh, you and I are not apostles. An apostle is someone who is an authorised ambassador. In a lesser sense, I guess we might be. But, you know, there was this bunch of people called the apostles, and there's this one great apostle, Jesus' most common self-description of himself in John's Gospel is the one who the Father sent. Jesus was very uh, very aware of the fact he'd been sent as a mission or as a missionary, on a mission. He's the Apostle. God sent Jesus. He didn't just arrive at some point of revelation. God sent Jesus from the very beginning. He's the Apostle. Keep your eyes on him, keep your ears on him. So it says in chapter 1 verse 2, God In these last days, God has spoken through his son. So he's come from God and in the second title, which we'll uh, spend a bit more time on later, he is the high priest. He is the one who will bring us to God. Now, what's the best way to understand a priest? Well, the word itself will take you back to this notion of the harbour bridge. If you want to understand the, well not, maybe not the harbour part, but the bridge part. If you want to understand Jesus, think not of Luna Park, Right? a source of fun and games necessarily so much as the bridge. He's the priest and priests are people who bridge two groups of people and bring them together. So the priest will link humans in their brokenness and sinfulness and God in his excellence and purity. And the priest is the person who enables us to come together which is why the Bible takes take the view that there is only one priest or to use another term there is one mediator between man. And God, the man Jesus Christ. So that as a as a minister, as a an ordained minister, I'm not a priest, really. Well, no more than any Christian is a priest. That is, we all can function as a bridge to bring to help people draw near to God, to bring God, as it were, into people's experience. But Jesus is the high priest. He is the one who does what only the high priest does. The high priest really his big day, as you know, is the Day of Atonement, which you can read about in Leviticus sixteen, which is a very important day to understand Yom Kippur if you've got Jewish friends or if you've got a Jewish heritage yourself. You'll know the day Yom Kippur the most solemn day still in Jewish festivities and celebrations where the question of human sin is dealt with. The high priest would deal with it in the temple which was a model of how you approach God and he would go just once a year after elaborate sacrifices he would take blood with him in through the great veil into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. There he would do a number of rituals with the blood to deal with the sin of God's people. The high priest is given a task on our behalf to deal with the question of your sin. If he's a great high priest, fantastic. If he's a scandy high priest, you've got problems. You entrust that question to him. Jesus is both apostle and high priest and the way to remain energetic in your Christian life is to keep feeding your mind, your intellect, your heart on him. To fix our attention on Him, He will be your your Gatorade. He will He will sort of keep putting the nutrients in that you need, so you can continue to fire up. So there's the first instruction. If you want to be make sure that you're amongst the Christians that continue to thrive and, and survive, fix your attention upon Jesus, not not on not even so much on God at this point, um, not on any particular theory or any particular church you belong to, but on Him. Secondly. uh, chapter 3, verses 7, all the way through to 4, verse 13. This is an extended reflection and application of Psalm 95. Um, Hebrews has this time, but for a whole period he'll be dealing with a particular part of uh, the Old Testament. Psalm 95 is kind of a bipolar psalm. It starts off the first six and a half verses really happy and celebratory about God and calling God's people to rejoice in God and to enjoy Him as their Creator and Maker and the one who is their shepherd and the one who cares for them and suddenly in verse 7 it gets really gloomy and ominous and threatening. And that's actually the ominous and threatening part that uh, God picks up here. So look at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of the testing in the desert. Verse 10. And that is why I was angry with this generation. In this period, as we're going to see, he draws a parallel between Israel's experience and our experience as Christians. But it's interesting just to reflect for a moment um, whether or not you've been hearing the Holy Spirit. Have you been hearing the Holy Spirit's voice of late? Would you not like to hear the Holy Spirit's voice? Of course. Of course you would. Well, it's interesting to see how the Holy Spirit says in this book that you hear his voice. Have a look at just at verse 7 there as the Holy Spirit says. And what you don't get then is some new word of prophecy, some new word of revelation. Where does the guy from this writer think that you hear the Holy Spirit's voice? Well, he quotes you a psalm that's about 800 years old. So, so you want, and it's not in the past tense. It, it's very, very definitely, the adverb is very definitely in the present continuous tense. Do you know how you hear the Holy Spirit's voice? when you pick up and read the Scriptures. There's no no either or between the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit if we're working sensibly with them. The Holy Spirit has a mouth and the most common mouth he uses is the Scriptures. So in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, God spoke very clearly in the past tense through the prophets and then God has spoken through his Son. He's done it, he's finished. How does he continue to speak? by picking up those finished words through the great prophets and through his even greater son and you pick them up and read them and you are hearing the Holy Spirit's voice. So, the question for us in the end is not, will the Holy Spirit speak? The question is at the listening end, whether or not again and again perhaps the Holy Spirit has spoken and we just have not listened carefully as we um, were called on to do in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. So, the Holy Spirit speaks as you listen to his book, as you read it. Well, what does he have to say to us here? Well, as I mentioned, he draws a parallel all the way through this section between the experience of Israel and the blessings and the challenges and the experience of God's new people after the new exodus that Jesus Christ has done. But it's fundamentally here as a call to be careful about how you live. Because one of the really sad uh, parts of the Old Testament is of the thousands and thousands and thousands of adults who came out of Egypt, who witnessed with their own eyes God's extraordinary miracles as he started off gently but then got very, very heavy with Egypt. And then he walked through the Red Sea with the waters piled up on both sides. Mount Sinai, where God himself came and spoke to them and the voice was so magnificent that they begged God to stop speaking. These guys had had experiences of God that we could only dream of at one level. And yet in the end, how many adults from that group ultimately arrived in the Promised Land? two, Caleb and Joshua, all the other adults died in the desert. They died in the desert because again and again and again and again they said no to God. God spoke, they refused to believe. God spoke, because they didn't believe, they refused to obey. And what the letter to the Hebrews here is, he's warning us to not be like them. But like them We've had the work of the Holy Spirit. We've had God working in us to reveal Himself to us, and this is a kind of a serious warning, it's a sort of warning that one of those fellowships that I've had some dealing with would never take seriously. Would always sort of accuse you of not understanding grace if you spoke from it, as if they understand grace better than the writer to the Hebrews. I don't think so. That's nonsense. Just so many of the truths in the Bible have got have got sort of. Well, I, as you've heard me probably say, they've got, they fly on two wings. So much of the truth needs two wings, not one big ugly wing, but two wings. The truth of God's grace and kindness and the truth of the need to walk carefully and to keep an eye on our lives. Both together work beautifully. So have a look at what he says in verse 12. 12 and 13 is where he sort of applies some of this to us in our situation. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. Just as has just been said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. So the menace here you see is is described fundamentally as that ugly three letter word sin and what it does to your heart. There are some viruses where the only safe way for your body to deal with them is to have nothing to do with them. See, the way to avoid the tragedy of AIDS is not to let the virus into your system. Once it's in your system, there's not a great deal that we can do about it yet or on that terrible uh, meningococcal business. The, the best thing is to avoid it and if it gets in your system to be able to act on it immediately to try and lessen its damage or eradicate it. And what the Bible is speaking about here is the menace of sin. Um, verse 13. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That in the end you won't finish up with a heart that is dominated by sin, that can be defined as an unbelieving heart. That the response to the Word of God, when you hear it, the promises of God, even the commands of God, is for you in your heart level to say, oh, no, I know I don't take that seriously. I can't believe that. I can't build my life on that. I can't shape my life on that Word can't be serious. The original temptations were all about that. To have a heart that in the end is dominated by a polite, perhaps not even very conscious, no to God. An unbelieving sinful heart. Because what it speaks of here is the great danger of of sin's deceitfulness. Sin is a liar. It always comes pretending to be your friend. Like some nasty old man attempting to seduce some child starts off as friend but the intention is entirely vile and evil. So the the problem here is the deceitfulness of sin and once you let sin into your heart, even at a small level, the Bible's consistent teaching is that it will trick you and it will harden your heart. So instead of having a tender heart, you'll have a heart that can be quite strong and resistant to God. A bit like you can get calluses on your hand if you do some of those magnificent sports like rowing. You start when the season begins and, uh, you know, your hands get blisters and they hurt because your hands are quite soft. But after a while they build up calluses and you don't need to wear gloves or anything. you just got these hard hands. And the says the same thing can happen to your heart. It happens by playing with sin. Sin is deceitful. I remember um, in the car one time when my mother had re-enrolled right back here at Sydney University because she'd always wanted to be a social worker. I mean, she wanted to be my mother first and foremost. But apart from that honour, she wanted to be a social worker. So, when she was in her late 50s, she came back and did a social work degree. So, she was dropping me to school one morning and I made a comment about a girl. I said, she's as ugly as sin. And my mother wasn't often rude to me, but she said, that's a stupid thing to say. And she didn't normally refer to me like that. So, I said, why? Um, She said, because sin isn't ugly. It's always pretty. It always comes looking attractive, otherwise you wouldn't do it. And there was a truth in that. So we talk about something being as ugly as sin. It's only ugly as sin if you've got deep x-ray vision. But for most people sin will come and it will offer you something. Hebrews later on will speak about the passing pleasures or the fleeting pleasures of sin. It does offer you something. Safety, ease, comfort, pleasure. It offers you something. But its intent is always to destroy it. comes looking small and relatively harmless and you really, one doesn't want to be too legalistic and too hung up on things and you know, too oversensitive and one needs one's freedom. And you just allow a small area of self centeredness and sin in, and it will take root and bring friends. And soon you won't even feel very guilty about it. And in fact, you'll be able to mock Christians who worry about it, you know, who just don't know what it is to mature and to be free. Or like silly old King David, who was you know, really traveling quite well with God, and he had a clear duty, which was to be with his army. He got lazy, they didn't need him. So he chose not to be where God called him to be and that is just what started his laziness. He stays back at home, he gets bored. He's on his castle, he looks down, he sees through a window, there's a woman having a bath. He commands her to come. Very difficult to see what else she could have done in that sort of culture. She comes, he talks, he commits adultery and as a result of that he begins to become a liar and a deceiver and a schemer who schemes the death of a man who gets in the way and a murderer. And his family suffers as a result of that one afternoon's exploit. Suffers for decades. It was such a small sin. It just started off as laziness. Not being where God called him to be. Then he sees the woman. That's not sinful. That's just an accident. But the next decision is critical, isn't it? What will he do with his eyes then? Well, he has the second look, which is sinful. And the look becomes adultery. See, it starts small. One sin leading to another, but in the end, it is so terribly costly to so many. So he says, See to it that that doesn't happen to you. There's a deadly menace, and you can't take sin too seriously. John Wesley, who was such an extraordinary guy, said, Give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and fear nothing but sin, and I care not whether they be laymen or ministers, I will change the world. It's interesting, is it? I mean, this is a wise man. Oxford graduate. Give me a hundred people who fear nothing but sin. A wise person takes sin seriously. I had a friend who uh, was an electrician learned to work with the Sydney County Council who dealt with a huge power wise to bring power from the big stations um, out near Lithgow and from Snow Mountain. They had all sorts of sayings that you learned, kind of in fun but it was serious, like one flash in your ash. Right? Just reminding you, don't make mistakes with this stuff. Don't take this stuff lightly. If you if you take it seriously, it's wonderful electricity. Mess about with it, it'll kill you. Apparently, of late, there are more people being killed by bears in the United States national parks in the last decade than there have been for decades and decades before. And the other reason why, not because the bears have evolved to a new and more ferocious species, right? It's because we modern people don't take warnings seriously. So there are all these warnings about don't get out of the car at this point, right? Don't feed the bears. But but bears are okay. We've seen them on the Discovery Channel. They don't hurt you. um, Or, you know, particularly if they've got cubs. And there's all sorts of warnings, but people apparently just don't take them seriously like they used to. Because if someone's warning you, they're trying to inhibit your freedom. Maybe trying to make you feel guilty. So people don't listen, so they die. And frankly, it's hard to be too sympathetic at that point. Well, you've got to be a bit sympathetic, particularly if they've got their kids there. But in the end, they're very clear warnings. God has given us here a very clear warning not because he wants you to be inhibited and all frozen up about things but because in the end there's a real danger. What's the way to keep safe? Well two things, just very briefly, verse 12 See to it, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart. So there's a call here to self-examination. The Bible, this is a, a sub-theme in the Bible. The main thing is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus but there is a time when you need to check yourself out to keep an eye on what's happening to your heart, whether or not you're becoming more confident in the question of sinning or whether or not you're fearing sin more and more, which is a real danger. So, there's a call to self-examination. In verse 13, there's a call for the need for fellowship. You need each other. Are you your brother's keeper? The Bible's answer that is yes. Do you need your sister or your brother? Yes. Look, verse 13. Encourage one another daily. Now, it's not about talking to yourself, but you can do that. It says one of the famous one another's of which the Bible is full. You need to one another, encourage one another, to exhort one another, to keep an eye on one another as long as it's called today, which it still is. Right. To beware of the deceitfulness of sin. I, got, I had a brother who rebuked me this week, yesterday. My wife dobbed me in. I've had a serious talk to her about this. but uh, She dobbed me in to this uh, slightly older Christian I meet with sometimes to keep an eye on me and... Um, uh, that I'd sat up really late on um, Monday night getting some work done. And I found again the joys, which I haven't experienced since doing essays, really of working to way, way, way early in the morning. And At three o'clock you get a new surge of energy, you know that sort of feeling? And um, I was having a good time and uh, anyhow, and it feels pretty noble. I'm serving the Lord here. Anyhow, this friend of mine brings me up and says, I hear you. He said, um, you think that's the way God organises the world? Is it that God organises how you have to work so late, so you're so tired, etc.? He said, Ian, mean, just check that you're not doing this to, for the pleasure and praise of men. Because he said, it's very unlikely that God organises His world so much in such a way that his children have to work so ridiculously in a way that's bad for them. And in, with other kind words he exhorted me. But in the end, I, you need know, you that because you just fall into silly traps of thinking. And you sort of, you know, you you have you're so busy with this and that and good things with your study, with your Christian ministry, with your etc. That you stop reading the scriptures for yourself, or you don't have time to meet with Christians, or you you only pray about big events instead of just drawing near to God as your Father and drawing near to Christ as the One who loves you, and just so that you get this business-like relationship with God, and just slowly you get tricked, even by good things and you get deceived into slowly starting yourself spiritually. And so this brother gave me a gentle head kicking and I'm thankful that he did. Uh, But we need each other to do that. And if you're a wise person rather than a goose, which is not exactly a New Testament concept, but it's someone who's probably fool, is the word that the Bible uses. If If you're a wise Christian, you will encourage your brothers and sisters to rebuke you, to call you into question. Even if they're wrong, and even if their manner is harsh, which is the normal thing that just about everyone says when a Christian brother or sister you know, calls them into question, and says, oh, it was the way he said it. Rubbish. It's very rarely the case. But We ought to do it as gently and as kindly, but even if someone does it to you brutally, hear what they're saying. It's much better to get a warning you don't need than to miss a warning that you do need. So, to take it seriously. This is how God keeps his children safe. We need each other. We really do. You need your brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters need you to encourage to be like the book of Hebrews which says in chapter 13, that's why the book is written, in order to exhort, to urge on, to encourage, to be like Sam the Hobbit who at various times, you know, his little mate says to him, Sam, I can't go on. You know, and, and Sam will use various tricks or various things to urge him on. Sometimes he'll talk about the Shire, sometimes he'll, you know, they talk about all sorts of different things at times to urge him on. Right? It's not one lonely person. Tolkien right? knew that's not how it works. It's a small group, sometimes just two, but we need each other. Well, there's a menace and there's a medicine found in self-examination and in our community. Well, flying along, because I had promised to play you this, uh, what is probably my favourite sermon, So I need to um, get to some sort of conclusion. There's a danger here of drifting into an unbelieving and disobedient heart. There's a danger here, in in a a funny sense, even in the Word of God, which is pictured as a sword. Because he says in chapter uh, 4, verse 12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart it's when you engage with the Word of God that you kind of see yourself. Because in many situations the Bible will come and it will give you a binary situation. You're either going to do this or that. You're either going to be selfish or loving. You're either going to lie or tell the truth. You're either going to be greedy with your money or generous with your money. You're either going to hold the grudge or forgive. You're either going to slander or keep a tight rein on your tongue. Again and again the Bible will call us to either or. You're either going to be faithful and loyal to Jesus or you're going to wander. You're either going to worship him or debase him and make him one of many. The word of God will be that which reminds you. and You'll know by your response to the word of God what your heart's doing. Because how you respond to the voice of God is how you respond to God. So there's, a, there's an even an edgy danger when we read the Bible, which is why people who are tending to wander from God will, generally speaking, lessen their barbarity, because it, uh, it's a great reminder of what God is calling us to be. So we need to be eager listeners to the Holy Spirit's voice, even to its warnings. Now, thirdly and lastly, back again, as Hebrews will do again and again, to focus again on Christ. The great, perhaps one of the most famous verses in Hebrews is that one running the race with your eyes fixed on Jesus from chapter 12 in the great application section of the book there's a mistake there which is mine which should be chapter 4 verses 14 to 16 we're not reading backwards Uh, 14 to 16 let me read it to you and then we'll just draw some thoughts and then listen to this fine man therefore since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, the question here is focus, to keep our minds on that which uh, will need to stimulate us and to keep us moving forward. He says we've got a great high priest, not just any old bridge, but one who will absolutely perfectly deal with with the differences and difficulties between you and God. And we actually honour God by trusting him. There's nothing particularly spiritual about going on and on about our sin because what that is actually saying is I'm not sure if Jesus is great enough if his priestly work in his death and then going to his Father's presence for us is great enough to deal with the sins I've done. I, I don't care how many people you've murdered or how proud you've been or how impure you've been. Jesus is far greater. And that's what the book's going to spell out for us as it it unfolds this up to chapter 10. He is a great high priest. Great in terms of who he is. He's Jesus, as it says. That is his humanity, son of God, reminding us of those two parts of the one Jesus. And in his great work. It says he has gone through to the heavens. He's not like the high priest who would go through this kind of model of the heavens through the various curtains. But Jesus has taken his death and taken his blood, as it says in chapter 8, into the very presence of God. And your high priest stands there beside his father, not beside some model, beside his father, ever living to make intercession for you. He's your man in heaven. He's your high priest. And he will deal with that particular problem that you have with God, which means there ain't no problem anymore. Which is why he says things like, let us hold firmly to the faith and let us be confident that nothing to be fearful about. Christ has dealt with all. He's a great high priest. He's able to bring the two things together. N.T. Wright tells this great story from a book uh, written by a man who spent five years in a German prisoner of war camp. And he observed there a magnificent Australian, What other sort, was there? that uh, a man called Tom Moore who was the officer in charge of the barracks of Australians. And he, he, the officer in charge in a prison camp had this job. He had to go and represent his men to the commandant and if his men were unhappy or felt things were unfair, he had to go and argue the case for the men. At the same time, the German authorities held him responsible for anything that went wrong in the Australian barracks. So at times he'd have to come back and deal with things where these guys were getting a bit stroppy. But what often happened to the officer in charge in prison camps, they would be beaten or sometimes even killed because of the misbehaviour of their men. And this guy, Tom Moore, apparently was, was uh, recorded by a guy who was there with him, just spent his whole time going from one, you know, to the men, then he'd go and champion their cause to the commandant and then he'd come and argue things back with the men, this constant bridging work. To and fro, to and fro. That's what Christ has done. He is bridge, he's, he's our champion. He lets us know what God expects and he deals with our problem. He is your great high priest. But he's not so great that He's distant. But the next statement, again, is, as we looked last week, is coming to speak of his closeness and, as it were, his nearness to us. Chapter five, verse two, which picks up this particular aspect of Jesus—the nearness of Jesus—speaks of his gentleness. He is able to be gentle with people like us who are broken, selfish, and sinful, and sometimes ashamed of ourselves. You don't need to go to Jesus or pull back from Jesus, thinking He wouldn't understand. He wouldn't understand. He would understand. He does understand what it's like us to be broken and for us to be fearful. We can actually bring ourselves, our needs and our weaknesses and our shame to him. He understands. He understands our fears. So he's great and yet gentle. And then the invitation is to draw near the throne of God with confidence. Not grovelling, not thinking that maybe he won't hear us because he's the infinite and eternal God. What would he want with us? But because of our high priest to come with confidence, to receive mercy which I take it as forgiveness for sins past and grace which is strength and power for present struggles. Both those things will be found from him. So we have this great high priest therefore we can live confidently. He's revealed the father as our apostle. He's dealt with our sin. And let me finish uh, before I introduce this this other guy. Let me read you a great old hymn um, which is about what it's like to have this great high priest. This is some sort of poetry really, so the engineers will feel at home because they're Renaissance men, rounded, enjoy bridges and poetry. So let me read this. Before the throne of God above I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Wonderful, isn't it? That's what it means to have this great high priest. Therefore, he says to live with confidence, to keep staring at the sun. That is the thing that will warm your heart. Not the fear of hell, not even the longing for heaven or the joy that comes from walking with God. But if you want to get your zeal inspired and fired up, if you realise that you've been getting weary, fix your mind and heart and attention upon Jesus. And I hope this next uh, little sermon, which is um, the words are in the pink because it's an old recording. Let's see if we can work out how to get this thing to fire up. Yeah. The Bible says my king is a
1: 7 way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder do you know it. David said the heavens declare. The glory of God and the firmament of his, his handiwork. My King uh, is, a, is a sovereign King. No means of measure can define His limitless love. No far seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of His soulless supply. No barrier can hinder Him from pouring out His blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the lostest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of proof theology. He is the quarrel, the necessity for spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's... He, yes, he is. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, this is my king. He is the key. He's the key to knowledge. He's the well-strained of wisdom. He's the way of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And His yoke is easy. And His burden is lighter. I wish I could describe Him to you, but He's He's indes- yeah. 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 He's indescribable. God. He's indescribable. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate. Couldn't find any part in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't hang him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yes. That's my king. That's my king. Yes. And time is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And ever, and ever. And when you get through all of the forever, then Amen. Good the God Almighty, Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray.
0: Now, Father, there'll be a day when we will see your Son, and when all people will see him together. And your word tells us that for many that will be a terrible day, but we thank you that it need not be that way. Lord, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit and through your word and by your people you have given us some inkling and taste of the goodness of your Son. And our Father, we pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts that we may see him more clearly so that we would love him more dearly and so that we would gladly follow him more nearly.
1: And Father, we pray this for his honor and for his glory.